there's times when we may say things and not realize what's going on. I, I said something like at some event that, you know, you don't get to hire your boss or you don't get to fire your boss, whatever. And the shareholders had just fired the chairman. And so they had literally just done exactly what I said you couldn't do. And there was just dead air. And then all of a sudden, somebody just burst out laughing, realizing the the uh, the irony about it. But I would say that, that if you use humor, this is going to happen. And you have to have a thick enough skin to realize that that it is going to happen to everybody. Not everybody thinks everything's funny. Um, and then you have to keep moving and, and you have to not give up. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Laparta. Thank you very much for joining me. I have been promising this session for a long time and I always aim to deliver. We have recently had guests on the show, Athena Kuglenu, uh, the stand-up comedian, and Neil Malarkey and John Creamer talking about improvisational comedy. And we now have our third episode in our trilogy on the links between humor and business. And these are two people who I I, I approached uh, when we first planned the podcast. It's taken us a while to get everything together, but I've wanted on from the very beginning. Uh, two very funny guys. I'm hoping they're going to prove that today uh, from uh, opposite sides of the pond, um, but whose humor definitely travels as their careers as international speakers shows. Uh, and we're going to look once more um, at why what they do is so important for people in business and in leadership positions. Uh, so my first guest is Jeremy Nicholas. Jeremy is an, an award-winning broadcaster, very well known for his news and sports reports for BBC TV and radio. I first got to know Jem uh, virtually, if you like, uh, when I used to listen to his show on BBC Radio London many years ago when we were both young, young men. Uh, he's also the world's leading keynote tickler, uh, probably can be called the world's leading keynote tickler because he coined the term keynote tickler. Um, but it, 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 he uses that to describe his skill of making talks more engaging using humour. Probably I should use him for my podcast intros as well. Uh, he was also the matchday announcer for West Ham United at their previous home at Upton Park. And I'm guessing that that's where he had to develop a sense of humour in the first place. Uh, and Tim Gard is joining us from the United States of America. Uh, he is a world-renowned keynote speaker and MC, and I can tell you from experience, he's one of the funniest speakers on the circuit. I've been lucky enough to see Tim uh, deliver his material on two or three occasions, and he's had the audience in stitches every single time. Uh, he uses humour in his presentations, not just to make people laugh, but because he believes that that entertainment element improves retention of knowledge. Um, and he also works with clients on how they can use humour to diffuse conflict and reduce stress as well. So both of them bring a wealth of experience, a wealth of expertise in the use of humor. Uh, and I'm hoping we're gonna have quite a light and enjoyable, but illuminating conversation with them. So Jem, Tim, thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thanks for the invite, wonderful. Yeah, thanks for having us. And also thank you for the warm-up acts that did the first two humor podcasts, um, you know, and it's great now that you can do the headliners. 
Absolutely, and I'm sure that they'll 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 be quite happy with that description as well. Now, yeah, when we had, it. I love it. Neil Malarkey. <laughs> fancy fancy having Neil Malarkey as your warm up man. That's brilliant. Do you know who my most famous warm up man is? Peter. Who Kay. is your most famous? Peter. That's Kay. pretty decent. He it was like one of the most. I don't know if you've heard of him, Tim, but he's like one of the all time most successful British stand up comics who just does like arena tours he hasn't done anything for quite a few years but when he was very very junior he, his second ever gig was to be my warm-up man at a gig i did in manchester so there you go who's who's your most famous warm-up act tim uh graham davis was uh graham was one of my <laughs> warm-up and and i really did not know him very well and he was funnier than i was and so that's always a big hit i think it uh one of the first times i spoke at at PSA, and it was just, it was just delightful. His advice to me was use all of your material, but only, or he said, consider all your material, but only use your intelligent material with our British, uh, with our, with our group here. And so, uh, <laughs> I lost about 99% of everything and, and just kind of let him take over. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I think Graham was overestimating the audience that particular day. <laughs> what is quite annoying uh, for, for me. What, sorry, what's quite annoying for me, Andy, is that I have been Tim's warm-up man once, and he still <laughs> considers Graham Davis to be the most famous warm-up man he has. I, which is quite uh, I had forgotten about that, but you're right. You were you were not just the warm-up. Yeah. You were the you were. I think you were you were the cornerstone. That's what I would have called you. So. Thank you very much. And what was really nice for Tim, because he's been doing this a lot longer than I have, is not only did he say my act was very good, he gave me some notes on it at the end, which, which I've used go. to this. I used to this day. <laughs> well, well, just for the benefit of listeners who might not have met Graham or know Graham, Graham is a, is a QC and barrister who is a very successful and very funny after-dinner speaker as well as a political speechwriter as well. So he's the one who writes gags for comedians that sometimes do – sorry, gags for politicians that sometimes right. do land. And on the subject of warm-up men and politicians, probably – uh, my most famous warm-up man is the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Ed Balls. Uh, so I'm going to claim the win on uh, on that one. Possibly, I think, I think Peter Kay's a, cl- a close one there as well. Um, isn't it true, Andy, that when you were actually giving your talk, they were still shouting balls, weren't they? They were. They were, yes. They, he, he went down so well uh, in his event. Um, I, I should say, for the again, for the benefit of listeners, when we had uh, Neil Malarkey and John Creamer on, uh, I asked them just to... I pointed out who was who so people would know who's answering the questions. I think when we have an American and a former BBC uh, a, a broadcaster on, you can work it out for yourself in this case. Um, I think we're going to we, be we, fine, we, Andy. You don't need to keep saying who's talking. We're going to be fine. <laughs> and I promise Jane will be funny at times as well. So um, <laughs> let's start with with, with Tim. Um, how did you – I'd like to hear this from both of you because I think that – and it's something I asked Athena as well. It's not it's not something where you, you sit down with your careers teacher at school and they say, what do you want to do when you leave school? And you say, I want to be a comedian or I want to be a humorist. Uh, at, at what point does that become the journey for you? And how did you end up doing what you do? And actually, why do you do it in the environment you do as a, as a motivational speaker rather than as a stand-up comedian, for example? Well, it was interesting when I, I had gotten out of the Navy in San Francisco in, in 1975 and had walked into one of the comedy clubs in San Francisco and it was just pure smoke. It was just this horror. I mean, it was like almost like a, a, a cloud in there. 
and I walked in and at the time, I think Robin Williams, I mean, I, I found out later there were some pretty big names that were appearing there and I wanted, I was considering doing that and it sounds funny, but I just thought I could not stand the smoke. I just was very um, allergic to it. And I remember leaving and, and uh, I, I didn't even make it all the way down to the stage to meet some of the other folks down there and went back to Montana uh, and just really started a, just your regular Montana life. I, I went to college. I, you know, I took a series of jobs and ended up in human services. Um, I was a welfare caseworker. Uh, people come in and apply for benefits and I would have to determine who got food and who didn't get food. One of the most stressful jobs in my life. But I had to learn how to deal with the stress. And this is where the humor started, where I was using humor for myself to deal with stress. And I, I moved up. I mean, long story short, I was a fraud investigator, uh, USDA food nutrition fed. Um, I got hired by them and had advanced far enough in my career there where they were using me. They call it show the flag, where they'd send me to different conferences to represent the agency. And I got to be known as the funny fed which is an oxymoron <laughs> is, is most what you know. And, and people wanted actually, they actually request the funny fed and it got to be very popular. And they started requesting me instead of my boss, which is almost a career ending move. And somewhere along the line, I decided I did not want to be 80 years old and not give this a go. And so I did everything stressful you can. I quit my job. I got divorced. I sold my house. I sold my car. I sold my truck. I did everything stressful you can do. In the first year, I did 15, pardon me, 15 events. The second year, I did 40 and then averaged about 75 a year uh, every year right up until the, the pandemic. And, and what was interesting back then was I didn't know you could make a living doing it. And when someone would offer me money, it was just, I was just fascinated by the concept because it was something I think I would have done for free. I had so much fun doing it. And what I was doing then was I was taking things that were serious and trying to make them funny uh, without, without diminishing them and started talking about stress more and more. And I, things just kind of took off for me when I got involved with the National Speakers Association and Global Speakers Federation and meeting people all over the world that were doing the same things. And it's uh, it's something where to this day, you know, I, some of my friends now are retired from the government that I was working with back then. They'd say, you know, Tim, you'd be retired. And I would say, and I would, I'll tell them the same thing. I would not have had anywhere as much fun, as much fulfillment. Yeah. I would not have seen the world as I did and laughed with as many people as I did. Uh, it has been one of the most rewarding careers I think anybody can have. Uh, something you don't know that we share in common is I used to be a social fund officer, which is exactly the same job. People used to apply for money from the welfare agency in the UK, benefits agency, and I used to decide who got the money and who didn't. So yeah. we we had a similar journey uh, yeah. in that sense. I, I, they had a nickname for me as well, but it's not suitable for, for repeating <laughs> on, on the podcast. Uh, Jem, how about for you? I mean, your route, I guess, was the more traditional route through through broadcasting. Yeah, I guess so. I, I did a quite a boring engineering degree at university and uh, couldn't face the thought of going to work for British Steel, which is where I was headed. And in my final year, started doing student radio, got to love broadcasting and then um, 
I think because I'm quite an introvert, really. I think people think that comedians and humorists are extrovert, and often we're quite introverted. And so that's why I loved radio, because I could just talk on radio and loads of people, whereas I couldn't talk to a girl at a party if I didn't know her, but I could, you know, do the broadcasting. And then... Um, I assumed that I would become a radio presenter, but all the, the you know, the postgrad uh, course steered you towards news, and I found news quite serious. And I, I was always looking for the funny in everything. And I remember my first ever job. Um, I was a news reporter uh, up in Hull for a radio station called Viking Radio, and somebody had died at the um, chocolate factory. They'd fallen into the chocolate powder, and so I went to report on it. And in the radio car, I sent it back, my report. And then uh, I just did a second one, a funny one, where I said, this is Willy Wonka at the chocolate factory. And then I drove back to the radio station and listened to the 11 o'clock news and then sweated like mad thinking, oh, my God, supposing they say the Willy Wonka one, someone's died. How thoughtless is that? And so I thought, no, you've got to be more serious. But I couldn't. I couldn't. I kept on radio. I just kept and everything that I did that got me into trouble. People say, I, li I liked it when you did that. So um, ah. alongside my broadcasting career, I started running a parallel career, doing after-dinner speaking and emceeing. And, and I started, I guess my first real writing stuff was other BBC presenters when they were getting married and they wanted help with their wedding speech or their best man one. They were being a best man and I would write funny lines for them. And I, I did that for years with no one, no one paid me because I didn't even think about it. I thought, oh, that's mm. fine, I'll just make... But then I started getting somebody from BBC Scotland got in touch and someone from the BBC Research Department. I, thought, I don't know these people, so I started charging them. And that's kind of how I got into it, really. Huh? Oh. I, there's something, you know, There's you've both got in common there, and, and I would share it as well. It's that passion for what you do. Um, and there's something special about being able to find something that you enjoy to that degree. Uh, and and make a career out of it. Uh, how much of that is the humour for you and how much of it is the impact on audiences? Do you think you could both um, have uh, the, get the same level of satisfaction if you were a more straight motivational speaker or business speaker? I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I've, tried, I've tried being high content um, without being funny. And I think all it does is it starts boiling up within me. It's almost the cartoon, you know, where eventually it just this explodes out like that. And uh, I think for me, it was more about the audience's journey is that I felt that, you know, I, when I read that people learn best when they're in a state of moderate arousal and humor is it's legal, you know, and it's uh, it helps attain that is that people, people seem to have more fun. And when I started seeing that they were, um, you know, that they, they, the visual things, you know, I do a lot of visual humor, a lot of auditory humor, things like that. Um, you know, I, I, I think that as I watch people enjoying it and really listening, uh, I, I, I feel it's important that it's included in the message, but I think the biggest thing happens every once in a while, I'll get done with the program. And a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, I had a gentleman sit through the whole, sat through the program and laughed and then watched me pick up all my stuff and I signed my books. And and uh, as I was getting ready to leave, he stopped me and he said, sir, he said, I just have to tell you something. I I, uh, I said, I have pancreatic cancer. And he said, I'd read that, that humor and laughter can help sustain my life. And he said, you might've given me some extra time. And it, wow. it just touched me so deeply. Um, and he just, and he walked off. I don't know his name. Um, 
but he'd sat there the whole time just to tell me that privately when no one else was around. And, and I, it, it, it's those sort of things that happen that, that when we miss the connections and our luggage is lost and, and all these weird things are going on that you'd say, you know, this really important that I be there next week or next month or whenever something else comes up, it's fun and it's funny, but it, I think it, I really think it does help people and it, it helps people see things differently. Uh, and, and Jem, for you, uh, is it something where you could see yourself delivering a straightforward business talk, content talk, how to make a presentation sharp without worrying about the humour? Or does there have to be humour? I mean, for you, you you can hardly go uh, half a conversation without, or, or a couple of lines of a conversation without making a joke. Yeah. So it would be unnatural. I can do it. I can do it. But why would I want to do it? because I think you should just play to your strengths. And my biggest strength is being very, very quick to think up a line. And so that's why I feed off a live audience. I I could not be a keynote speaker that does the same 40 minutes every day of the week. I, it would drive me mad, you know. And that's why during the pandemic, I was pulling my hair out and I've hardly got any hair because you get nothing back. And I feed off the audience. And I... I think that's why I, I like doing this the speaking more than I liked being a TV reporter, because I think, why would I just want to say what they said? Why can't I put my little spin on it? But you can't do that, particularly if you're reporting on a court case. It's, it's generally frowned upon if you say at the end, and I think they did it. <laughs> so why I'd always want to put funny and I, I realized that everything I did that got me into trouble, I should keep doing because that was what made me stand out. Yeah, I, I, both of your responses have talked about that audience reaction and audience response and uh, and the impact it has on them. I, I want to go back and pick up on what you said a little bit earlier, Jem, about uh, being an introvert. And I could see Tim nodding along. And I've always, um, I, I've always liked the image of the comedian with a sad face or the clown with a sad face. I always think of Tony Hancock as a great example. But there are so many stories about people who really made us laugh but in their own lives, had, I'm going to say had a different persona because I don't want to say that every comedian is miserable. There's a difference between an introvert and quiet and, and, and being Tony Hancock uh, and suicidal or miserable. They are very different things, and I should stress that at this point. But, but I, I think where I'm making the connection is that there's an element of putting on a show and not revealing your, you know, your, your true personality in that environment, being someone you can't be elsewhere. Does that make sense to you, Tim? So for me, it's almost the opposite. Um, I think my wife was more surprised that it was the tip of the iceberg that people were seeing, that uh, that I am, you know, that people do walk up to me and just start talking to me for no, I mean, she'll say, do you know those people? I don't, you know, that I'm open to it. And so people come and talk to me and then I'm, that I'm genuinely trying to see the funny and to share it with people. And so for me, I'm, I don't believe I'm an introvert. My Growing up, my father was in the Air Force. We moved every two years to different bases. And so every two years, I had to make new friends. Um, my older brother played music. That's how he connected. My younger brother was in theater. I was president of everything, you know. And so, uh, and I was shaking hands and connecting with people. And and so for me, humor was, was life. It was connection. And it enabled me to connect with people quickly. So I, I nodded because I would say I have so many friends in this business that are very introverted. I just am not one of them. Uh, so, and 
Jem, as an introvert yourself, uh, how do you, I, it's really interesting to hear you say it's safer behind the camera, but then to turn around and say, but actually I prefer live events. But then I, I could name speakers we both know who are really happy on stage because they have control. They don't have to, they know what they're saying, they're in control of it, but then they want to go and hide away afterwards. So where yes. would you, where would you sort of fit that disconnect if you like yeah because if i'm speaking on stage they've come to see jeremy nicholas speak so i know that instantly they want me there um even if they you know perhaps the the organizer wanted me to speak i'm not saying everyone in the audience instantly knows who i am often they'll go i don't know who this guy is he says he's off the telly i i i've never seen him before in my life but um i I have been called the 11th most famous BBC Jeremy. So that is that is quite uh, prestigious after Jeremy Paxman, Clarkson, Vine, Bowen, all of those. Um, but the, the, the reason that, that what I, uh, this introvert extrovert thing, clearly I'm not ridiculously shy, but I'm, I'm happy standing in front of a thousand people or 20 people speaking. But what I wouldn't want to do is afterwards when people are having a coffee, I wouldn't want to have to go up to anyone. But if they came up to me, I'd chat to them for the rest of the night. But I, it's just yeah. that when I was a report, a radio reporter in, in uh, still at journalism college, the, the exercise that scared me most was going up to people in the street and saying, what do you think about this? And holding a mic because I just I don't like troubling people. But if people have booked me to speak, I'm, you know, then I love it. So Tim said just before that humour helped him connect. Is that something that you find for you as well, that humour helps you build those connections with people? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I think of humour as, as a tool in everyone's toolbox, really. You know, in, in the networking world, it's just one way of talking to people. But sometimes people in business think, I've got to be funny, I've got to be funny. You haven't. If, you know, if, if it works for you, do it. But it, if it doesn't, then there's plenty of other ways. But for me, I realise that's my strongest suit. There's, there's very few people that can think up a funny line as quickly as I can. I think that what happens is, you know, when we connect with people like that and we do it very quickly, uh, the, you know, the humor helps us connect. It helps us, it helps us be able to communicate and talk with people. But he's, you know, he was right on when he talks about the filters, that although this is happening at the speed of light in our brains, there's still filters that are going on that are saying, yes, this, not this this is okay. This is not okay. It just isn't on our mind, out our mouths. It's, uh, it's, it's controlled and it's done very quickly. And he's, he is way faster at it than I am. I mean, I, I think one of my greatest moments was falling off a stage in Bismarck, North Dakota, hitting the floor and being almost unconscious and everybody's laughing. And then they stop laughing. And I look up and I say, and now I'll take questions from the floor. You know, I mean, every, that was that was probably my, my one moment that Jeremy probably would have thought about as he was falling down towards the earth. You know, that's how fast he is on that. So, yeah. But, but you know that ever since I heard that story the first time, I've been hoping to fall over uh, <laughs> while delivering a talk. And, and that's not suggesting to any future clients that you should rig the stage, but no. you know how I'll respond. <laughs> Scott, <laughs> if I do. Friend, we. Our friend Scott Friedman said that his line would have been, and um, it's just the stage I'm going through, you yes. know, if he would have yeah. fallen to a stage. So, yeah. So, so we've got Jem back now, and you, you were making the point about filters, which, which Tim picked up, Jem. Mm. Uh, that's a really interesting point because 
this is we're in a culture now where we have to be so much more careful about what we say. There are so many more ways to offend, it seems, than there have ever been before. And that's not me passing judgment on it, because I'm not a libertarian who thinks everyone should be free to say what they want. Uh, I do think that we should be conscious of how other people feel and you should laugh with people more than at them. Um, I, I, I believe that poke fun at the people in power, not the people without power, for example. Uh, I know, Tim, in, in, in American culture, it's much more of a free-for-all. Free speech is far more integral to your values as a society than it would be in the UK. But how do you cope, Jem, with the changes in our culture now and the, and, and the the more chance there is of tripping up and, and it being amplified as well by social media? Well, I think it helps that I'm quite a nice person, so I don't have many bad thoughts. I, a lot of funny people are quite cruel, and I've never, I've never been cruel. So I just make, sh- I just run through. I, I'm never likely to say anything racist or sexist or homophobic. But the the things that I'd have to think about is: would anyone in the room take this a different way to how I mean it? Um, and so I'd run that as a filter. And one of my big things is always punch up, never punch down, which is yeah. certainly a very British style of humour. We always joke about the bosses and the royal family and the government, but we never uh, punch down at people, the people that, uh, you know, that are uh, not saying, I want to say below us, but that doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> Unable to defend themselves. Yeah, the little people. The, yeah. yeah, don't, don't yeah. make fun of the little people. <laughs> enough people make fun of me Jim. <laughs> uh t- tim how how do you see a big difference when you're speaking to u.s audiences compared to countries like the uk in well, terms of it's that free speech principle effectively in, interestingly enough in the u.s where free speech is supposed to be such a big thing it's it's actually quite restrictive about uh what is and what isn't appropriate and uh, when people are at work, we have to be really much aware of creating a hostile work environment. There are quite a bit of laws in and around that and language. And so the main rules for me is I tell people that we should use humor to to never, never, ever diminish anyone. We use it to enhance, never diminish or, or put down anybody. And if you have to ask yourself, should I say this? Odds are you shouldn't. That uh, uh, when we say it today, it's forever. It is literally forever. When you when you send a tweet out, when you send something out, it will follow you the rest of your life. And so awareness is, I think, is really important. So again, the rules for me are enhanced, never diminish. Um, you know, I mean, if you have to ask yourselves, you know, uh, then then leave it alone. And I think the third thing is is that when I'm when I'm doing a speaking at a conference, those people have to be there, whether they're in Las Vegas whether it's evening or, or it's morning, whenever it is, the same rules apply as if they were at work. And so we've got to make sure that the language is, is clean. Um, I don't have blue material. I spoke at an event in Australia years ago, and they said, Tim, you can use your blue material. I don't have any. You know, I, I like Jeremy, I pride myself on my material strictly clean, very, uh, very upbeat. And I think this is the main difference between us and a lot of comedians. Um, comedians are almost always known for poking at or, you know, or putting down. And that is how they make their money. And if you want to pay your money and go, you know what you're going to get. But if you have to go to a conference and you're required to be there, it's not your choice. Then 
then the rules are a little different. And I would say in the U.S. it's most restrictive. Restrictive in Canada, a little less so. Uh, in the U.K., um, uh, it a lot of it are different slang terms that we have to be aware of that we don't use inappropriately. Um, in Australia, I think it's probably one of the most liberal. Um, but all in all, a cubicle is a cubicle is a cubicle, no matter where it is. And the humor that's around that, as long as it's positive, um, I don't think it'll matter where it is that you say it. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. Let's let's focus in a little bit more on the link between humor and business as you're talking about being appropriate for a business audience. Jeremy, you, you mentioned earlier that some people, you know, would say, I have to be funny, I have to be funny, I have to be funny. Uh, not everyone finds it natural. You guys clearly do. You, you've, you've demonstrated that very clearly on this call. But a lot of people... Um, struggle with it. They might not personally think they struggle with it, but but they, they, they do. So, so, I mean, this is something you specialize in, Jen, particularly when you're working with business leaders and people have to make presentations. How can people find their funny? How can how can they become funny if it's not something that becomes na- that comes naturally to them? Yeah. So, so helping other people to be funny is my favoriteest thing in the world. And the reason for that is because people will pay me hundreds of pounds to be funny and they'll pay me thousands of pounds to help them be funny. So that's why I like it. Um, And there's rules for comedy and people don't realize there are rules for it. They, you know, it's like learning a language. If you're going to Germany, you're going to learn German. If you're going to want to be funny, get some rules. Um, And I, I've read probably hundreds of books on comedy and this still there's not one that i'm happy with that explains you know and i've done loads of courses so in the end i devised my own course and um said this this is not everything but these are things how you do it so like one way is just to say three things and the first thing is a normal thing the second thing's a normal thing and the third thing's a weird thing and we all know that structure from three men going to a pub the first one does something normal the second one does something normal the third one does something weird and you'd never have four people. There's never four people going into a pub because you you just need to set up a pattern, reinforce the pattern, subvert the pattern. And that is just, that goes back to Aristotle and, you know, the ancient Greeks. And Aristotle, he, he actually didn't like humor very much. The, the, the reason, you know how some people look down on humor in the business world? There's two people to blame. One is Aristotle because he thought it was a bit trivial. And the other is Shakespeare because his comedies were rubbish. You know, he, did, he wrote brilliant tragedies, didn't he? Brilliant histories. And then his comedies, not funny at all. And so for like 400 years, people go, yes, no, the comedy is not. But actually, everything that serious speakers can do, me and Tim can do, and we can do this. Everything that dramatists can do, comedy dramatists can do as well, but they also do this funny thing. And it used to really annoy me when I was on radio when... Um, I'd be, I remember being in a newsroom late one night and there was a story about a murder and they, they needed someone to voice it, which means that the newsreader says more re- details from. And so and I said, I'll do that. And they went, no, well, you always do the funny story. I went, yeah, but I can do the serious stuff. And they said, no, you can't, you can't do this because otherwise they'll think it's not true. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's your, your thing about how, what can people do? 
they can they can learn the rules of it and yeah. and the the there's that three lines thing and it, it doesn't have to be normal normal weird it can be big big and small or global global and very very local just always that third one's got to be different and tim how about for you what uh, where, where where would you suggest people start i mean i know for you a lot of your humor comes in the form of stories i know um i've heard jeremy say many times you don't tell jokes yeah. tell a story yeah. um, so and that's your approach isn't it yeah you know jeremy's so right about the about the jokes there's a structure there's a setup there's a punchline there's a punch word it's why jokes don't translate well between languages is because you know if you don't have that setup or that structure then it doesn't work so if you go from english to german you know, and if the last word is the punch word, when you put it into German, it will change the syntax and it changes things around. It doesn't work with stories. You know, a, a story is as long or as short as it should be. Um, yeah, people are looking at their watches too long. Um, but I think what Jeremy and I do is we'll help people make a story funny or funnier. And it's it's got to be real. I mean, if your story is, well, the first thing I did was cure cancer. Well, everybody's going to go, eh, not true. So, you know, Jeannie Robertson said a story has to be true or it could be. And so uh, I, I was I, I do coaching, uh, not as well as Jeremy, but I do coaching also. And this gentleman had this story that he told about. He was scuba diving and he said he went and there was this big giant sign on the wall that said rule number one was be certified. Number two was swim with the buddy. Rule number three was tell somebody where you're going. Rule number four was never ascend without exhaling or you'll die. And I said to him, any rule that ends with or you'll die should probably be rule number one, don't you think? And so this one simple turn changed his program. And he actually talks about prioritization. And Jeremy will tell you too, some people are so close, they don't see the humor the way it can be done by bringing somebody from the outside like us. And I think the second thing is, is that whether you work on it with a coach or a professional like us, or if you have a group of humor friends that you work on each other's material, then, then it, it's something where you want to do that with other people because the material has to be massaged, if you will. I mean, just one more quick story, uh, boarding a plane here in Portland, Oregon, there's four boarding areas and this guy, they announced that no boarding one. And this guy ahead of me goes, this is so complicated. This boarding is so complicated. And I said, well, yeah, you know, you got boarding one, you got boarding two. I mean, that's just brutal. It's complicated. <laughs> and so I go on board the plane and I, and I thought about that story a little bit and I thought, you know, we can massage that out a little more. And so the second time I told the story, it was, well, yeah, I look at the guy and I say, you should have seen Fibonacci sequence boarding when we had row one and row three and then row four. And then I thought, well, what about quadratic equation boarding where you had to show your work before you could board? So that story evolves and it starts out with a very kernel nugget. Um, but, but Jeremy and I, we can make those funny. So it's either you get a coach or you have a humor uh you humor buddies if you will that will work on it with you well i mean i did that so so i've uh delivered stand up twice and uh -huh. the first time i was so protective of my materials that even my nieces who would have been teenagers then said do you want to do a preview for us because we can't come to the event i was like nope you'll have to see the video afterwards <laughs> i was so protective and i did okay but it was okay 
And one of the things I realised was that the material wasn't as sharp as it could be. The basics were there, but I wrote it all myself. So the second time I did it, I I, I took uh, Jem and Alan Stevens, who you know and who's been on the podcast, uh, out for a curry, and we went through my material and they elevated it. You know, they added the 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 the, the extra. Uh, bonus uh, punchline, you know, take it the extra level and things like that. And it was such a difference in terms of where that humour went. Um, And I think we can be too precious sometimes. So having the right people around us can make a big difference. Let me go back because one of you earlier, I can't remember who it was, one of you mentioned looking for the funny in everything. And, And what you've shared, Tim, and what I know that you're both very, very strong at doing is just taking everyday stories and then creating your stories from those. And, you know, a lot of people probably say to you, well, funny things seem to happen to you, but your lives are no different to everyone else. You're just attuned. I guess you, you have your reticular activating system engaged that part of your brain that recognizes what you're looking for and what you're looking for is the funny. So how do you pick from everyday um, experiences, funny stories? Uh, For me, anything that evokes a strong emotion is going to be a potential story. And I mean anything that has an emotion to it. Um, I think the second thing is, is that I've done this so long that I, I, I will put these, something will happen and I'll put it at the back of my brain and it just kind of bounces around until uh, I'll realize that there's, there is a, a potential here of something being very, very funny. Um, I mean, you saw, in fa- I didn't know if you saw Facebook yesterday, this gentleman I sat next to uh, had a very mundane line. You know, I, I Jeremy, I, I, I broke my watch and I, I didn't realize how often we look at our wrist when we don't have a watch on. And I kept, I kept looking at my wrist to see what time it was and there's nothing there. And finally, the gentleman next to me goes, it's two hairs past a freckle. And then he just, and he's older guy in eighties. He just laughed and laughed and laughed and, and uh, um, you know, and, and, and I laughed and I had heard it for so long. And, and I said, I think that's funny. And this guy sitting across from us goes, that's not funny at all. And I looked at him, I go, what, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a, I rent apartments and I do something else. And I said, look, bud, you know, rentals and you know about finances. I said, I've been a professional speaker for 25 years. I have a black belt in humor. I've, I've used humor all around the world. I've written books about humor. I think I'm a little more qualified than you are to determine what's funny and what's not funny. And this is hilarious, in my opinion. The people around us were laughing. He was laughing. And and it, it's, it's interesting because the people that saw that and posted to it, they said the same thing, Andy. It was, Tim, you live in a, in a, in a place where you honor and respect humor, and I do. And that everybody's humor should be honored and respected, but I'm open to it. I see it and I want to share it with other people. Just quickly on that. What I loved about that story when I saw it on Facebook is we all knew that joke from school. It's not original, but the timing and and actually you talk about humor, bringing out emotions. It brings out Uh, that emotion you get around reminiscence. And that's what it's, it's not a great joke. It's not a bad joke. It's what that joke does. And I think that's why that humor worked. Sorry, Jeb. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think it's nice to hear old jokes as well because it's nostalgia, isn't it? And I think that's why people like a lot of my stuff. They think, oh, yeah, I remember when that was, uh, you know, when I first heard that 20 years ago. Um, I think for for me, uh, I have to, I, I get this. So there'll be something, I'll say something sensible 
And then in my head, I'll think, I'll tell you what would be funny if you said this. And I have to say it. It has to come out. And, you know, so it's quite annoying in conversation. I think I think in my 20s, I was a really annoying person because I've just ridiculous things would occur for me. I'd have to say it. And people think, oh, <laughs> just dial it down, mate. And now uh, some, I'll say something one way and I'll think, what would be funny off that? So um, I was coaching a guy the other day and he's he he was talking about how he'd start he was he's in food manufacturing and his dad had been a farmer in rural Ireland and he said my dad was a really good farmer and I had to say he was outstanding in his field you know because that's where farmers were outstanding in his field I had to say it because it came into my head and he then he liked that and put it in his talk and and that's often what I'll do with people. I'll, I'll run through their serious bits and I'll say, what you could say is this, and it's like an aside. And again, going back to Shakespeare, the, often the Shakespearean actors would do a side to the crowd and they would be the funny bits. And that's, that's all you do with a serious talk. Just give yourself permission to what would be the funnier side. And it's, it's e it, well, I find it easy to do myself, but other people, you, you know, if so if I saw Tim do do a routine... I, I think I know him well enough to go up to him at the end and say, I'll tell you what would be funny after that if you said this. And he'd look at me and he'd, he'd either think, go away, who are you? I've been doing this for years. Or he'd go, you're right, I like that. Because I remember Manchester in about 2013 or something. And yeah. Tim said, you know your story, that's really good. And it comes to a big ending. But what else, you know, what, what else? Are the, don't, he said, don't just get one laugh out of it. What else could you get from it? And I thought, yeah, why am I getting one laugh of that? And so now I get three laughs from it. So he didn't tell me what the laughs were. He just told me that they should, that I should dig deeper for them. So I got my spade out and I dug deep. And do, do either of you journal what happens in, you know, stuff that happens in your day-to-day -day life so you can go back at it and and pick out stories and find the funny in them at a later stage? I do. I, I keep a, I keep a journal. I love going to conferences because you always get these little books. They almost every conference you go to has a little notebook. And so um, I, I love those and I fill them up and I date them and uh, I always write on them reward if found because I, I, I hate to lose them, but but I'll jot little things down. And I think the funniest thing for me is looking at them a year later when I'll read something I'd written down and I have no idea what it's about. <laughs> I, I, I wrote down something today, actually, because I was at an event. Uh, it was an online event from Australia at nine o'clock London time this morning. And one of the speakers was saying about how the morale is very low in the car rental industry at the moment. And I just put in the chat box everybody hurts because of sorry yes i was hurting there everybody hurts. yes yeah Very good. <laughs> it's yeah. it's an rem song but it's also the name of a rental company and i don't know when i'll ever do that if i ever you know when, when when's car rentals ever like to come up again but if it does i'm in there with everybody hurts and that gives you a chance to get their morale higher yeah. uh which is equally painful um right <laughs> so <laughs> How so, do sorry, you... Andy. Just just one tip here: never laugh at your own yeah. jokes. That's that's one thing. I well, someone has to. So, <laughs> someone has to. That's that's my philosophy. And uh, we were talking about this. Yesterday. You do. Tim I do. does. I do. I can't. Yeah. There's a line. Of, Lou Heckler said something. I thought Lou Heckler's very very excellent storyteller here in the U.S. Lou yeah. said, "We don't tell and retell. We live and relive." 
And for me, when I'm when I'm sharing something that was really funny, I do laugh. I mean, I put myself in that moment and I think it enhances the story. But but I do I do laugh. And I I, I mean, I've heard this many, many times, but but uh, I don't think I could stop. I, I people get to laughing. It's so contagious. The next thing I know, I'm laughing, too, even though it's me. See, if you did ever come to me for coaching, Tim, I would get I would knock that out of you I, because I, I don't like it. I don't like it. And I reckon I reckon people watch Tim go out. They say Tim's good, isn't he? But he laughs a lot. They go, yes, I don't think he has been to Jeremy Nichols for coaching. No, it seems to he seems to be doing quite well, though, doesn't he? Yes, I think he must be the exception. See, I don't like it when Billy Connolly, Billy Connolly laughs all the time. And I always think that's why he's not quite as good as some of the really good comedians. But he's done quite well, hasn't he, Billy Connolly? <laughs> I, I, I've seen Billy Connolly live about three, time, three times, and not about three times, three times. And the second time I saw him, I laughed so hard at one of his stories that I doubled over forwards in laughter. The person in front of me laughed so hard, they leaned back a long way in laughter, and we clashed heads. Oh. That's never happened to me at any other comedy gig, and I, I, I think that's a good testimonial for Billy Connolly. Really and was that at the, and laughing at was it at the the second of the three gigs? Did that happen? Because it, yes, yes it strictly speaking, if I was adapting that, it would happen in the third one. So you'd have normal, normal, and then weird. You what you've done there is normal, weird, normal. That doesn't work, Andy. Have you not listened to I've, anything? I've subverted I've told it. <laughs> I've subverted it. I'm too 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 much uh, of a truth teller. So back to to laughing at your own jokes. What what if no one else laughs? How do you uh, respond if people don't get it and you end up in that awkward space where there's not the response? I'll give that to Jeremy. Well, the, he's more experienced than I am with that. Is it? Uh, see, he's jumped in with that. Whereas the line I was going to jump in with that's never applied to me. You need to ask Tim. But he because he's a very pushy American and I'm very shy Brit. I didn't get in there quite quick enough. But yeah, it's the same guy. Um, if you're if you get if I'm getting nowhere, I always turn the heat on myself. You know if. You, you should always try and um, keep your own credibility. But if, if I'm in trouble, I'll make a joke at my own expense. And by that, I mean, if I'm in Johannesburg and I'm just dying, then I make jokes about, oh, crikey, you never guess what they do in London. And the people think, oh, he's from London. He's doing it against himself. So always turn it on yourself if you're in trouble. It's uh, it's a trick that does work. Yeah, and I, I, I and go on. I really agree that that comedy hell exists. Whether you're a comedian, a speaker, is that there's times when you're you're doing this, and there's a variety of reasons why nobody's laughing. I was on stage during nine eleven. I was actually in the middle of one of my funniest stories, and there was no cell phones, but people had heard about what had happened at the back of the room, and it started spreading in the room, and I just kept going. You know, I didn't stop. Nobody, I don't know if somebody should have come up and told me, but I just kept going. And the bureau that hired me was in the back of the room. Nancy Vogel was just beside herself. She didn't know what to do. And so one of it is, I'd say the professional keeps going, you know, that, that we're being paid to do this, you keep going. The second thing is I have some jokes or some lines or some things that I know are always going to be funny. And I will keep, I keep those in my pocket to be able to, to revert to, or I know that I can switch to something else. And the third thing is there's times when we may say things and not realize what's going on. I, I said something like, 
at some event that, you know, you don't get to hire your boss or you don't get to fire your boss, whatever. And the shareholders had just fired the chairman. And so they had literally just done exactly what I said you couldn't do. And there was just dead air. And then all of a sudden, somebody just burst out laughing, realizing the the uh, the irony about it. But I would say that that if you use humor, this is going to happen. And you have to have a thick enough skin to realize that that it is going to happen to everybody. Not everybody thinks everything's funny. Um, and then you have to keep moving and, and you have to not give up. But I do keep a funny like my nose flutes. You know, you play it by blowing through your nose. Yeah. I can play the nose flute. Everybody will laugh. I know that. Uh, and I know that's hard for our listeners to understand. It's a small plastic deal that you play mm. by blowing through your nose. You can play any song on them. It's, it's quite a visual thing, isn't it? Even though the sound is very, very beautiful, but it is quite visual to see that Tim's playing it with his <laughs> nose. I don't know if you remember, Tim. It, it is a stunning sound. But years ago, a professional speaking association convention, when when it was back in November, it was my birthday, and you did actually get me up on stage, and the whole of an a nose flute orchestra played me happy birthday. and It's, it's one of my most treasured memories. <laughs> very, very good. Let, let's let's wrap this up now, and I want to I want to sort of wrap it up by moving away from the world of presentations because we talked a lot about humor in presentations, which makes sense because a you both deliver presentations and use humor in them, and b you both coach people on doing so. But but humor in business isn't just for presentations, and there's two things I want to pick up on here. The first thing is to go back to that blog you wrote on on Facebook, Tim or the post you wrote on Facebook, because what struck me, other than the nostalgia element in that post, uh, is you said that the humour could just be for himself. That, that, that gentleman next to you, it tickled him. Uh, and it, it you know made him laugh. And you talk about using humour to alleviate stress and to diffuse conflict. So can we look at uh, that element of it and, and just why humour can be important for yourself, how it can help alleviate that stress and how you can use it both for yourself and with others to diffuse conflict situations? Yeah, for me, you know, I, I, I think everyone has their things that they find funny no matter what. The Tim Conway and Carol Burnett show that was on years ago in the 60s in the US, they used to do skits where the people in the in the skits were trying to make the other person break character and laugh. And so Tim Conway, Carol Burnett, Harvey Corman, they would do these different skits. And there's a few of them. One of them is a Siamese, there's a Siamese, uh, Siamese twins elephants. That's one of the funniest skits I've ever seen. That when I'm really, if I'm stressed out or if there's things going on and, you know, I mean, it's like the other trip I was on and my flights kept getting canceled. I will watch that and it will make me laugh no matter what. What it does is, is it breaks the pattern of woe is me. This is bad. Things are stressful. I get to laughing and I know it gives me hope. And that's what it's all about is that we have to do this for ourselves. And I think, too, there's some things that we may find funny that other people may not find funny. And it doesn't make us wrong. It just means that we all have our own individual senses of humor. And so uh, I think that when I say that we do it for ourselves, that it's really necessary to do it on purpose and with meaning and to make a point of having things around that make you laugh. You know, I have all kinds of different, I know they can't see it, but I have 
visual props and things I use in my program because I want people, you know, there's a thing in the brain, mirror neurons, that, that it, when, you, when you hear a, a song, it can take you back to, your, to a dance in high school or, 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 you know, you can have a smell that will take you to your mother's kitchen. The visual things can make us smile and laugh, and those should be kept at hand to help refresh and renew us. So for me, you know, I try to really be on purpose about humor, really, as a, as a source of stress reduction for myself. Uh, and and Jen, what about for you? I mean, you, you focus on business presentations, but, you know, I've known you for a long time and, and humor is centered to any conversation with you pretty much. How important is that to you? And, and, and do you work with business people in terms of how they can build that into those conversations and, and strengthen relationships through it? Or have you seen that work effectively with people? Yeah, so I, I do a workshop on using humor in business and how it helps, for example, build your team. Um, I think a lot of leaders spend all their time thinking about being a great leader and they don't think about being funny. And if they just introduce a bit of humor, why why wouldn't they do that? If you think of, say, dating websites, on a dating website, good sense of humor is the most searched for thing. I I have, you know, you've, you've seen my wife. She's beautiful. I never would have been able, you know, I'm punching way above my weight there because I'm being funny. And and yet leaders always think, oh, no, I can't be funny. Otherwise, they, I'll lose credibility. No, just – and it's, you don't have to be funny. Just be playful. And it releases these chemicals in your brain that make you memorable. And Tim was, says it's, you know, it's best to be in a state of arousal. I, I was slightly troubled by that image that he, he gave me. But I think it does – it's endorphins, whatever those chemicals are that, that make you laugh. I, I get very stressed by things like travel, you know, uh, being late and things. And, uh, you know, Tim's stuff about planes and check-ins and rubber chickens sticking out of his suitcase. They, I just remember things like that. And I think, yeah, it's not worth laughing at. Because the great thing is, once you decide you're going to use humour, nothing winds you up. And if it does, it's material. And, and, and I'll tell you what, it's much cheaper than having an analyst or a therapist. You just think, you know what, this is this is the worst thing ever. I'm stuck at this airport. How long am I going to be in Helsinki? My, my baggage is in Oslo. Uh, but you know what? I'm going to get a cracking after dinner routine five minutes out of this. So I, <laughs> I just say embrace it. Don't think I've got to be funny. Just think about being playful and just being chatty and just it's like skiing come off you know come off piste for a bit just see what happens don't you don't have to come go into the very deep snow you can get back to the main track in a minute but just just give it a go what what's the worst that can happen uh, i love that image to to finish uh, up on um when, when jen talks about tim and his uh, his rubber chickens he has a suitcase he has a rubber chicken's legs sticking out of his suitcase whenever he travels uh, it's a core part of his routine. Just Google it. Look it up on YouTube. It's there. It's very funny. Um, and it's memorable. And, and I guess that's one of the core points of this conversation. If you use humour in the right way, uh, you'll connect with people uh, and you'll be memorable as well. Uh, and, Jem, you didn't pick up at all, but uh, I admire your, you, you know, yourself. I admire you when you mention how you're punching above your weight and both Tim and I just nodded along in agreement. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> you didn't take offense at all. So no offense taken. Uh, and that's the other key thing with humor. So Tim, Jem, uh, I've been waiting to do this interview for the best part of two years. 
uh, and it was worth waiting for. Thank you so much. We've had some laughs along the way. We've got some great takeaways as well. Uh, and I hope people have listened, uh, listening have enjoyed it. I'm sure they have. Thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. I look forward to Pleasure. seeing you in Thanks, Dublin. Andy. Yeah. Cheers, Andy. Thank I'll you. See, Thanks, I'll, see, I'll see you in Dublin. Thank you. So thank you very much to to Jim and to Tim for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. That completes our our trilogy, our headline act there, uh, Jeremy Nicholas and Tim Gard uh, talking about use of humour in business. And I hope that these three uh, sessions over a few weeks have really... Uh, giving you the confidence to go out and try some try some new things. Be playful, as Jem said. Uh, go to some improv classes. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago with, with John and Neil. Um, but just use humour in, in the way you engage with people. Don't force it, but just let it happen. And you'll find connecting with people and building those relationships and being memorable uh, so much easier. Uh, speaking about using humour, I don't know how I'm going to create a link here um, because it's as far from humorous as you can get from certain perspectives. Uh, next Monday, the 5th of September, we will have a new Prime Minister in the UK. The, the, the outgoing Prime Minister has given us a few laughs, um, you could argue, along the way. Um, but either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak will be the new Prime Minister uh, of the UK. Uh, one thing they share in common, uh, they share in common with a number of Prime Ministers past, including Boris Johnson, including David Cameron, including Theresa May, and I can go on, and that is they went to Oxford University. And uh, Simon Cooper, Financial Times journalist, uh, columnist, has written a fantastic book called Chums, which looks at the impact of Oxford University and particularly the Oxford Union on the senior levels of the British establishment. Uh, and particularly on the senior levels of British politics and how come such a small pool of people have gone on to rule the country in, in many different facets. And we've got an in intriguing and stimulating conversation between myself and Simon to mark the occasion next Monday where we look, yes, we look at that impact of Oxford University and the Oxford Union on British politics, but also what we can take from that in terms of breaking into establishments ourselves and breaking down cliques. So that'll be next Monday's Connected Leadership Podcast. It's a really, really interesting one. I hope you've enjoyed today. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you'll enjoy that too. So I shall see you again then on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.